This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. It is the 250th episode of the I Read Comic Books Podcast, and I am your host for this momentous occasion, Paul Jaisley, filling in for Mike Rappin. I was going to say we should have done a big special oversized issue for uh, episode 250, but every episode of I Read Comic Books is special to me. So I'm happy to be joined uh, by two uh, great hosts to join me on this 250th episode extravaganza, uh, Kate Lamphere. Hi. And Kara Shamborski. Hey. Uh, Welcome both. We don't really have an extra oversized special uh, episode. It's just hard not to think of it that way since we're comic book fans. We want 250 uh, episodes or issues, as it were, to be special, but we'll make it special. You know, I think we have an interesting topic, so... Um, before we get into the topic for today, let's start off with the questions I am legally obligated to ask as the host of the (laughs) podcast. Uh, how have you two been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Kara. Hello, Paul. (laughs) Um, I, you know what? I'm just, I, uh, what's that quote? I, I am just straight up not having a good time right now. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. sure. that (laughs) That quote feels like my life at the moment and i'm sorry to start off the special extravaganza episode by being <laughs> such a downer but um i've just like like okay friday i took the day off from work and i was just feeling like opening a school in a pandemic is overwhelming and i decided that i needed um a little a little personal time and uh, one of my friends from the city told invited me along for a hike and mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'm going to take the day off. I'm going to get out of the house. I'm going to be one with nature and it'll be great. And mm-hmm. then I realized half an hour into the hike that I was not physically equipped for this hike because <laughs> sure. it was straight up a low mountain and I have been sitting on my couch since March. So <laughs> my body still hurts. And then afterwards yeah. we went to a restaurant outside and it was the first time I'd visited a restaurant um, during the pandemic and I had inadvertently violated the health code by pulling my chair away from the table because I'm not in the pod of the people that I was with. Right. And so a server came over and explained this to me and I was like, okay, yeah, but like, can, can we then move to two other tables? Cause we were told at first that we can't, that I can't have my own table cause there's just one of me. And he was like, that's that's dumb. Who told you that? Yes, take the other two tables. And then, you know, it, uh, in a normal level of a restaurant, there's a lot of, of chatter and a lot of noise and you don't really feel like you're being overheard. But if you have like a third or a half of your capacity and people are spaced out sitting outside, your voice can carry, which is how <laughs> I heard this server bitching about me to the other uh, servers and patrons. And I just burst out crying into my French fries and no. I was inconsolable. And it was not great. So uh, that just kind of set the tone for my weekend. And like, I have had some nice moments, but overall, like my body still hurts and I'm still just like, well, I guess I'm never going to a restaurant again. Thanks for that experience. So I'm, I'm delighted to come and join you and talk about comic books instead. So I can forget about, you know, reality for a little bit. Yeah, We're nicer here. (laughs) I know you guys are so nice. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, and to answer your question about how are comic books, Paul, I'm actually going to I'm actually going to um, hijack Kate so we can do a, a mini <laughs> mini book club. Um, yes. yes. So how are comics? So um, maybe like a week or two ago on our IRCB group chat, 
Um, Kate Scotchless was raving about this book that she had read called Mooncakes. And she was like, oh, Kate Lamphere, thank you so much for recommending this book. It's awesome. And Kate Lamphere's like, what? <laughs> so, so apparently... Scotchless had mis like misunderstood um, one of Kate Lanfear's previous recommendations, mm-hmm. and but then it transpired that because Scotchless had found this book and recommended it, um, Kate Lanfear and I also read Mooncakes and also okay. found it delightful. So we're going to have a mini book club right now where we talk about Mooncakes. Oh please, <laughs> please do. Um. So. It is by Suzanne Walker and Wendy Shu, and it is about um, this witch who, who are their, like long lost childhood friend, who's a werewolf, comes to town, and they have to like exercise a demon from the woods. And it sounds like it might be a horror story, but it's actually like very charming, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's it's just. Um, like it's it's like strong fall vibes, and um, Kate, were you the person who said this is what you wanted pumpkin heads to be, or was that Scotchless? I don't know, but I would agree with it. Whoever said it, <laughs> <laughs> we're all of them. It's like, it's so nice when we find a book where we're all just like, ah, yes, this our opinions align. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even notice the fall the fall theme until about halfway through, but yeah, it had like references to. Um, I mean, they made up a, a religion and a, a holiday for it, but it was basically, um, yeah, it was a fall celebration that they were celebrating in it, which is with the food mooncakes, which is what the book is named after, even though it's only mentioned in one scene. <laughs> That's so charming, and it, yeah. and it draws you in, and you're like, yes, I would like to read a story about lunar pastry. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well... Kate, what did you think of the characters when you were reading this book? Like you, they were all charming. So it's a non-nuclear family that that you focus on. The protagonist is being raised by her grandmothers. Um, so it is an LGBT plus book, which is fantastic. It was it was very cute. Um, there was one friend that was like, I was worried that there was going to become a oh I'm the third I'm the third link or um, the third wheel. But there was none of that. It was great. It was just a very supportive friendship. She showed up when she was needed. She called when she when she needed them. They were all very supportive of one another. And there I was... I enjoyed immensely that the friend was like, everyone around her is a witch, and she's like, physics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this shouldn't be possible. <laughs> I thought that was an excellent contrast. Because, you know, like, real- realistically, if you... There, there would be that person where if they discovered that magic is real, they're going to be like, but science, I'm going to make it work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wish that I actually looked up this uh, writer and I can't really find much else by her. Um, but I'm going to keep an first, eye out because, piece, yeah, I definitely want more because of this then, kind of story. Then make more. Make more works, writer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, yeah. I'm excited to join the Mooncakes Club. I just looked up some of the artwork, um, and I, I, it looks lovely. Wendy Zhu's artwork looks lovely, and uh, you, you've uh, made it, uh, you know, uh, sound appealing. So, uh. oh yeah, I, I, I will admit, I did not fully see the twist at the end coming, so that was satisfying. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed, I enjoyed that the werewolf friend was like, like 
oh, a friend or a love interest. And I, I always just really appreciate romantic subplots that don't take over the majority of the plot, if that makes sense. Like, I'm way more interested in, like, an action-adventure story where there you see chemistry developing and, and, like, there's some kind of resolution at the end as opposed to a rom-com where, where the whole thing is. But they will fall in love. They're attractive people. Of course this is how it is. Right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I much more enjoy the tension of the reality of, like, well, life is not... Life is not always just about relationships. Sometimes other stuff happens, like a demon in the woods who's terrorizing everybody and all the fine forest folk, and you need to stop it. Also, maybe maybe you will end up with the cute friend. <laughs> Let's find out. Let's go on this magical adventure together. Here, have a mooncake. <laughs> it's that classic story, you know, two people meet, they are attracted to each other, and then have to fight a demon. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a tale as old Normal. as time, really. Yeah. <laughs> No, that actually sounds great. I'm glad you both read that, and you've you've uh, kind of sold me. So I'll have to dig into that yes. and uh, check it out my, as well. So, cool. Join the cult. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Kate, we know uh, one comic you read. Is there anything else you want to talk about? You read this week? Um, yeah, I read the Rivers of London Volume One by Ben Aronovich and Andrew Cartmel, with art by Lee Sullivan and uh, Louis Guerrero. And I actually started listening on audiobook to the prose books by Ben Aronovich, and I've been working through those pretty quickly. I assumed that the comic books would be adaptations, so I was trying to read these prose books before I read the comic books, and it turns out that they're just additional stories, so you don't need to read the prose books first. <laughs> okay. Um, and I think that this would appeal a lot to fans of the Dresden Files. It's a modern urban fantasy with a magic user, male protagonist. It is a, it is still a little bit sexist. Like all of the women are described as to how attractive they are, but they also like mm. hold positions of power. Like every single woman is like like a police officer or a leader of the community. Um, and then. Uh, and comparing it to the Dresden Files, there are way more people of color characters in it. So just, you know, as a reader, that's more of what I want to see in all of all of my reading. So that's mm-hmm. been a really nice change um, in that within that genre. And a lot of these comics are on Hoopla. There's like, I don't know, I want to say almost 10 volumes. Um, and I've only read the first one, but I'm going to keep going with them because, I mean, they're not... They don't seem to really spoil what's in the prose book, so I think it would be fine if I kept reading the comics um, without being that that far along in, in the prose number. I, I guess. hope, I hope you are correct and that you are not ruined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, some pretty intense stuff happens in the first two prose books, and I haven't seen any of any. Even though like the the characters that those ha- those things happen to are referenced, you don't see them and you don't like hear about their story. So like reading the prose books would just add a a, a layer of extra meaning when those when that reference happens. But you didn't you didn't hear about the, the terrible thing that happened to them. <laughs> so oh, <laughs> hopefully it it will not spoil me. But we'll see. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep reading them both. Um, both the prose and the comics so i always find it so interesting when comics are created as a supplement to a prose book there um i'm totally blanking on the title but that happened a few years ago with like this ya series about um circus performers i think something like the tightrope girl or something like that Hmm. and they had there was like a tie-in comic sequel that i read prior to reading the book 
and it still worked as a one shot. But then I went and read the first book and was like, oh, this is good. Do more of this. And uh, <laughs> so I appreciated that. Um, and then, of course, sometimes it, it doesn't work as seamlessly as you would like. For example, when Brian and I went and read lots of Star Wars and it turns out that the new like squadron books that tie into like the tie fighter squadron comic books like don't actually tie in and like that was unsatisfying but i i just find that overall the the comic prose compliment can work if you actually care to like interweave the threads and make it make sense yeah i think that this would stand alone okay i mean like i said you you'll, you'll miss one reference but that's, I mean, that's fine. <laughs> you can just read past it. <laughs> I have a very hard time reading books without pictures in them these days. So uh, I'll think yeah. I'll stick to comics. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks while I'm doing other things, but sitting down to read a prose book just takes so long. <laughs> well, uh, for me, I, um, I unfortunately have let my weekly comic book uh, floppies uh, pile up around the, my house uh when when Diamond shut down for the, the brief month or so there, I was able to catch up on everything. Now we're back up and running more or less at full speed. I'm back in my uh, a bad habit of just letting things pile up and you know, let weeks worth of comics just sit around unread, which is a crime. Uh, but uh, I did make some time this week to read two graphic novels or OGNs that I was highly, highly uh, anticipatory for. That makes sense? That were highly anticipated by me, uh, one of which <laughs> <laughs> was... Jack Kirby, The Epic like epic Life of the King of Comics by Tom Scioli. This is a book, of course, I was going to buy it as soon as it was announced. It's Tom Scioli, who did Transformers vs. G.I. Joes, who did Fantastic Four, Grand Design. Uh, one of my favorite artists and writers. Him doing a biography of Jack Kirby, as the title implies. And I can't think of a better artist to tackle Jack Kirby. Scioli's artwork is so influenced by Jack and his storytelling sensibilities. Obviously, it borrows heavily from Jack Kirby's work. This book is really interesting because it is an unauthorized biography. It hasn't been authorized by the Kirby estate. It's not authorized by DC or Marvel. So I was kind of expecting more of a warts and all type of biography, but Scioli plays it pretty straight. The book is essentially narrated by Jack himself, taken from interviews he did over the years and kind of restructured into a narrative sort of uh, explanation of his life. Um, there are a few moments where you get voiceovers, quote unquote, or narrative uh, asides from other people, like his wife, Roz, has a few moments where she gives her account of the events that happened. Uh, Stan Lee shows up to give his accounts of a few things, but overall plays it pretty straight. A lot of stuff I already knew, but what's really interesting about the book is the way Scioli ties everything together. Everything that Jack went through is filtered through his comics. Like His comics were a way for him to understand and express his own life experiences. So the reason Jack Kirby always did comics that featured a gang of kids was because when he was a young boy growing up in Lower East Side of New York in the 1920s, he was in a gang. So it's like, well, I grew up in a gang. That's part of my life. I'm going to make comics about these kid gangs that like fight crime. It's, you know, that was a way of him expressing his life. And then his experiences in World War II were really like harrowing and really sh shook him and shaped his, his idea of what humanity is. So that becomes the new gods, right? And Darkseid becomes an allegory for fascism. So... The idea that Jack Kirby's work, as cosmic and big as it is, it's very true to what his life experiences were. So I appreciated that. And 
you get a sort of shorthand history of comic books as a medium and a business because Kirby worked in comics starting in the 30s. So it's the 30s through the 90s. You get to see firsthand how hard it was for him as an artist to get by and fight against corporate control of comics. So it, it could be a tragic story, but it ends on a very positive note. We all know what Jack Kirby's legacy is, so it's nice to see it celebrated in a book like this. You know? Yeah. Um, when, the, when did this come out? Uh, it came out just last month. I think just a few weeks ago. So, I did yeah. see something about it. I don't know if you, well, you probably shared it with, with, with the group or something, but I, <laughs> sure. I have seen some stuff about this, so I might, uh, I'll definitely add it to my reading list. Add to cart. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say, I mean, I, I could nitpick things about it, but I overall really enjoyed it. And I think if you're someone who doesn't know that much about Jack Kirby, really, it's very informative. I will say Scioli makes a very specific art choice. And at a certain point in the book, he starts drawing Jack Kirby with big, like, kawaii, chibi-style eyes. Like, he draws him, like... and it's, it's. I see that on the cover, yeah. Yeah. And it's jarring at first, but I there's a reason why he does it. I don't want to spoil my interpretation or give too much into it, but it's like, I think there's a reason he does that. And it's about Jack Kirby's personality. So it is jarring at first, though, to see it, so... Anyway, it's I highly recommend it, especially uh, if you're not a Jack Kirby fan. You should be, and this will explain why. I guess, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jack Jack Kirby. Learning about Jack Kirby was, mm, I guess, a slight turning point in my understanding of mainstream U.S. superhero comics. Um, sure. Yeah. Because you know, I I got into Marvel uh, like more in my twenties. Um, as opposed to DC in my my teens and my youth, and so my understanding of Marvel up to that point, like like cast your mind back, folks, to the like mid two thousands when Stan Lee was making cameos in like that first Fantastic Four movie <laughs> yeah. and like <laughs> the first Spider Man movies, and it was like I was enough of a nerd to know like ah that is Stan Lee, the comic book man, but didn't really know anything else about everything else and. Sure. Like, somewhere around Marvel Comics, the untold story came out, and I read it like it was the Bible. I was just kind of like, oh my god, Jack Kirby and all these other dudes were wronged. And obviously the legacy is much more complicated than that, but I was, like, really drawn to this idea of Jack Kirby's art being um, dynamic and bold and very um, of the decade that the decades that he was um, drawing it in, and um, how it really did capture the imagination of all these people who had been reading comic books, but reading comic books in the way of like, you know, here's like, you know, when you're reading a comic book where you can't really tell what the action is supposed to be versus a comic book where the action just flows very fluidly. And Jack Kirby is definitely one of the latter artists. And um, so I think that that was uh, a real moment for U.S. comics where everyone was like, oh, this is exciting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so yeah I, I trust. Yeah. So I'm always excited when he gets a little more attention, especially in a format that might attract people who maybe aren't reading comic books necessarily. Right, exactly. And I think uh, I would argue that comic books are the perfect medium to tell his story. You know, his life was so intertwined with the medium so it makes perfect sense and like yeah to know more about the man just behind the pictures it's very easy i think to see the finished product and think oh yeah someone drew that but to actually think about how much more work goes into that it's it's important to reflect on that and uh oh trust me 
we could have hours of conversation about Jack Kirby, but that's for another time. This is, this is now a Jack Kirby appreciation podcast. <laughs> oh, if only, if only. Okay. <laughs> uh, very briefly, the other book I wanted to mention uh, was Pulp by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips with colors by Jacob Phillips. This is a standalone uh, OGN written by the team that does Criminal and Kill or Be Killed and all those fantastic comics, which I love dearly. Um, Brubaker and Phillips, they're the best. I don't know how else to describe it. I know when I pick up one of their comics, I know what the tone is going to be. I know what it's going to read like, and it's always satisfying. This book is about a writer who's writing Western stories for pulp magazines in the late 30s. Um, He's struggling to get by because the industry, uh, you have the Great Depression on top of the industry being in a slump. He's, his rates get cut. He goes from like five cents a word for his stories to two cents a word. Um, at the same time, you have uh, the American Nazi movement happening in New York. There are a lot of people sort of promote, promoting Nazism before the war really starts. And that atmosphere lends itself to crime. And that's what Brubaker and Phillips do best. So the writer... The book is about he was a an outlaw in the Old West as a young man, and he's kind of falling back into his old ways and uh, decides to maybe uh, go back to his criminality and uh, of his past. So, you know, again, you know what you're going to get with Brubaker and Phillips. It's going to be about crime. It's going to be about uh, <laughs> toughness. What's interesting about this book, it's also about the creative process. It's about a writer who's being screwed over by the publisher, right? much like Jack Kirby. There's a lot of connections between the two books, I think. And... I, I also really enjoyed the way Jacob Phillips used the color in this book. Uh, the flashbacks to the Old West sequences are colored in a different style that's subtle at first, but when you notice what he's doing, it's really, really impressive and really jarring. Um, it's a really beautiful looking book. I'm glad that Brubaker and Phillips are kind of doing these more standalone 100-page OGNs as well as their regular you know, monthly comics. So highly recommend that book as well. I always feel about Brubaker and Phillips the way I feel about quote-unquote good music like okay yeah. like i am a like bubblegum pop trash queen and so sure. when people play music that is like quote-unquote good like maybe more um indie music or like rock from people who are very good at their craft and making excellent things like i listen to it and i understand that it's good but I don't want to listen to it. And I feel <laughs> that way with Brubaker and Phillips. Like I've read, I read like Fatal. Yeah. And um, God, something else. What was that golden age Hollywood one that they did with uh, the murders? The fade out. Yeah. That one. And it was great, but I really struggled to understand like what was going on. Like I understood that I was reading something good and I, and I understood that it was, very well executed, but I didn't connect with it in yeah. the way that I would connect with, for example, Mooncakes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I mean, that, that's understandable. I find myself sometimes too reading their stuff. And even if I reading the stuff month to month, sometimes I lose the thread of the narrative, but I'm always willing to kind of just look at the craft involved and kind of that's enough to carry me through a lot of the times. Just to, to see how they're telling the story to me is just as interesting as the story itself, sometimes even more interesting. Um, and and also, I mean, they're one of the most, let's, we don't throw this word around lightly, but one of the most iconic comic book creator duos working today. Like like you said, when you see their names attached to a project, you kind of know more or less um, what you're getting into. It's kind of like if someone says like, oh, Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey are doing a project together and you're like, here is my credit card. Thank you. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it, it, to tie the music analogy back into it, I'm just kind of a sucker for that maybe comfort of that. I know every time I buy a Dinosaur Jr. record, it's going to sound more or less the same as the last one, but I kind of like that. You know, I know what I'm going to get. So, yeah. Uh, there's something comforting about that, yeah. So maybe that's what I need right now in my life is comfort, and this uh, provided it. A story about crime you and, and everybody else. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so those are the books we read. Let's talk about comics we're excited to read in the very new f- near future. Comics drop this week on Wednesday the 19th of August. Uh, Kara, what are you excited for this week? Speaking of just wanting to be surrounded by comfort, <laughs> right? which has for sure been my like pandemic purchase motivator, like I am swimming in tie-dye now and living my best <laughs> 90s life, even though, sure. you know, I was a child in the 90s and could not... <laughs> fully appreciate that nostalgia like i got i got a brown lipstick on the way i am ready like i'm here for this this uh regressing to childhood situation um so i when i was looking at comics that are coming out this week i was really looking for something where i can be like i don't want to be a grown-up with responsibilities i want to go back to my youth um and i did find a way to do that with comic books but with a, a slight a slight academic twist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Fantagraphics is a publisher where every time they put something out, I'm like, "Ooh, I want that," and then I realize I would very quickly go broke. <laughs> so, yes, I I don't purchase from them as much as I uh, would ideally want to, but they do exquisite archival collections that are nonetheless affordable and a series that they are publishing now is the complete Carl Barks. And uh, Carl Barks is kind of the guy who was creating Disney comic books um, in the mid-20th century. And um, the Disney comics are actually still hugely popular in Europe, but we don't really see them in the U.S., which is honestly a tragedy because especially some of some of the the carl barks work in particular is excellent storytelling um and the uh they're they're doing a a second printing i believe of volume 12 of the complete carl box and you're like carrot volume 12 I, do i have to read the first 11 <laughs> volumes no friends it's disney comic books they're like one shot stories and volume 12 is all about Scrooge McDuck, which if you are unfamiliar with the character Scrooge McDuck, in which case I will say, get thee to Disney Plus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Scrooge McDuck is essentially a riff off of the famous literary character Ebenezer Scrooge, except he's Donald Duck's uncle and he's very wealthy and Scottish and has a lot of adventures relating to his money and being a miser essentially but it's disney so he's like charming about it in his capitalist way and (laughs) uh so this complete carl barks volume 12 uh, scrooge mcduck features the story only a poor man which the fantagraphics uh solicit on their website describes as the defining scrooge yarn (laughs) and also his first major appearance um (laughs) So I have this book in my cart now. <laughs> it's, being, <laughs> it's being released on Tuesday, not Wednesday, because I think because it's a, a a book. So I think they're on the book publishing schedule of Tuesdays. Um, but yeah, like the 
Carl Barks is an artist where I understand his work is formative for this time period, but I've just never really dove, dove, dived, dove in too much into it, but I will... I will now change that. I, you know, what am I doing? I'm at home. I want to pretend to be a youth again. Why don't I just revisit all of these comics that were written for all ages, um, but with my, you know, more, more, uh, more adult critical eye? I can still enjoy it, but I can also be like, ah, look, the storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That Carl Carl Barks is one of those uh, writers or artists that every other comic writer or artist, sorry. Every artist cites as an influence. It's you'd think like how can these duck comics be that influential? But you know Jaime Hernandez, Gilbert Hernandez, every uh, artist. You know I'm sure Jack Kirby was looking at stuff. Steve Ditko was all looking at these stuff, this stuff because it's basic cartooning, and he kind of helped define what that how that functions. So you know I've looked at a little bit of it, and like you said, much like Scrooge McDuck diving into his giant uh, vault of coins, I need to dive into more of this stuff to investigate it. So. Right? There's no better time. What else are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So thanks for reminding me of that. I might have to pick that up as well. So. Right? <laughs> uh, all right, Kate, what about you? What are you excited for this week? I am excited for something that you've heard about a few times before. <laughs> Go um, on. <laughs> Lady Mechanic. We're all about of, comfort here. Yeah. Lady Mechanic of Volume 6. Uh, Sangra is the uh, subtitle. This is by Joe Benitez, Garcia Chen, and Brian Ching. And I was collecting the single issues in this particular series, but I fizzled out for some reason. Um, and now that it's collected in a volume, I'll have, to, I'll have to finish it. But I might check out the collected volume because I've never read a collected volume in this series. And when publishers collect a book they tend to add extra front matter or rear matter or at least different stuff than what you would read in the single issues so i might i might just grab the whole volume um and i've talked about lady mechanical before on this show she's a woman with mechanical arm arms legs and eyes she's an investigator badass with a steampunk and in a steampunk victorian era and if you're interested in reading this, every volume can pretty much stand alone. So if you want to check this out, um, I do recommend it. Sangra in particular is, it's got some backstory with like um, Central American mythology. And so this takes Lady Mechanica uh, to a place that she hasn't been before, which is starting to become a theme in the in this series, which I'm really enjoying. You got to, um, as much as I really like the kind of, uh, Victorian London general setting that you get in the first couple of volumes, seeing other parts of the world in this kind of f- fictional version of the late 1800s is is a lot of fun. I know you've mentioned that series before, and all I can think of is a gender-swapped Victorian Inspector Gadget, which seems right <laughs> in my alley, so I should really check that stuff out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Lady Mechanica is not afraid to punch some bad guys, and it's a lot of fun because she swaps between like a scene where she's all in like this nice ball gown to do some visiting to mm-hmm. ask people questions. It's not a ball gown; it's the, it's the what the they wore in this in this time period. Um, and then in the next scene, yeah, yeah, and then the next scene she's in like okay. some um, sure. like kind of like Black Widow type 
get up but with like extra goggles and stuff so she can well she doesn't need the goggles but like extra like eye coverings and things because yeah. you're speaking my language mechanical stuff, eyeballs so. she can cool. like see in the dark and stuff <laughs> um it's as fun. for me it's a very small yeah. <laughs> week uh, for my pull list so this kind of is my pick by default uh more or less it's wonder woman dead earth number four the last book in daniel warren johnson's post-apocalyptic Wonder Woman series. Um, it's Andy Warren Johnson writing it and doing the artwork with Mike Spicer on colors and Ru- Russ Wooden on letters. The appeal for this book is Daniel Warren Johnson's watching this in an oversized sort of magazine size format. So you get these big pages, big double, double page spreads, and it looks lovely. But the last issue, issue three, um, I found really sort of disappointing or underwhelming. Um, you find out in that book, because again, it's post-apocalyptic, Wonder Woman is kind of the last hero left, and in issue three, you find out what happened to Superman, specifically what how Superman and Wonder Woman had a falling out, and I won't spoil anything, but uh, what Wonder Woman does feels so wildly out of character um, that it kind of like really didn't work for me. Um, that said, I'm enjoying the artwork and the visual appeal of the book enough, and it's only four issues, so I got to grab the fourth one, I guess. Uh, and I'm, but I'm just hoping that Daniel Warren Johnson will be able to pull out a surprising, satisfying ending, given some very strange, uh, out of characteristic uh, actions from Wonder Woman, the titular character. So it's a mixed bag. It's a, one of those books that maybe will hold up better on reread, but uh, I, it's a book I'm just buying simply for the visual aesthetic appeal at this point, I guess. Is this one of those, like, Wonder Woman not in character things, like, when, um, 15-year-old spoilers, she snapped Max Lord's (laughs) neck, and everyone was like, what, is that really Wonder Woman? Is that, is it, like, that level, or is it more like, oh, DC, you did that thing again, where you're just changing Wonder Woman because that's what you do every Uh, decade? um, no, I guess more of the first, without giving too much away, um... It's uh, yeah, it's it's something that it's dramatic dramatic. and it's shocking and it feels it's just there to be dramatic and shocking, you know, as opposed to, you know, fitting in the narrative or fitting with the characters. So I don't know. Again, I I like Daniel Warren Johnson's artwork enough to kind of maybe overlook that. Uh, If nothing else, it'll be a pretty book to uh, to read. So, Uh, okay, let's take a very quick break. We'll be back with our topic for this week, which is comics we didn't think we would like. Um, we'll unpack all of that uh, when we come back shortly. I forgot to mention this or neglected to mention this at the top. It is our 250th episode. We would not have 250 episodes if it weren't for the support from our listeners. So I want to say special thank you to all of you who are listening, especially our friends over on Discord. We have a great time talking with all of you and our Patreon supporters who give us a little bit of their hard-earned money to keep the show running and for bonus episodes. So if you're not on that, be sure to check out our Patreon. We really appreciate it. And again, Thank you to everyone. We would talk about comics with each other regardless, but it's nice to know that other people like to listen to us do it. So thanks again for 250 episodes. Hey guys, how about 250 more? How's that sound? Well, I mean, for sure, at this time when we're all just in our homes, we need this sense (laughs) of community now more than ever, huh? 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 Exactly, exactly. So so yeah, again, I do want to say thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, our topic for this episode is an interesting one. Uh, it's kind of a slight contrast to all of the comforting comics we were talking about earlier. We're going to talk about comics we didn't think we would like, but 
I'm assuming the implications comics we ended up liking regardless. So the idea of pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone, trying a book that maybe at first glance, looking at the cover or some of the artwork or whatever, we didn't think we would enjoy, but we challenged ourselves, we read it, and we enjoyed it. I had a hard time thinking of stuff, so I'm wondering if either of you two had books that jumped right to the front of your mind when you heard this topic. Well, I, I did, guess it's, yeah. it's... Well, Kate seems much more sure of herself than I am, so Kate, please <laughs> begin. Um, so the first thing that jumped to my mind is superhero comics, which mm-hmm. might make me a comic book hipster. I'm <laughs> like, no, I don't want to read those. Um, yeah. But I've read a, um, a handful of them um, for different reading challenges or books of the month or a special episode on the podcast or something. And I, I ended up enjoying um, Animal Man by Jeff Lemire and Travel Foreman. And I mean, like the whole, the red scenes from the DC's, the green, the red and the rot mythology made my skin crawl. And (laughs) (laughs) so there were definitely parts in it that were not for me, but in general, I read this two years ago, and I'm still thinking about it because it was it was a lot different than I had really gone in expecting. There, there was a lot more nuance as to um, um, like morality um, <laughs> and like the main character wasn't sure of himself quite quite a bit once you got into um, past volume one. And so it kind of it kind of broke the expectation of um, these like larger than life characters that have had their own series or have have been seen across multiple books are always sure, always tough, always um, morally correct. And it mm-hmm. just the nuance was was really new, new to me with this kind of book. Um, so I, I actually might read more um, with in inside this DC like creation mythology, I might um, in particular, I'm kind of interested in reading the swamp thing. Sure. Yeah. Especially can after I, watching the show. Yeah. Can I uh, just tangent for a moment? <laughs> Please. I, I uh, just read um, a book all about um, fungi and I'm so sorry to be terrible on titles, but I continue to be terrible on titles. <laughs> and, okay. uh, but there's like this this new book that came out that is all about um, fungi and how we don't really know a lot about fungi and we're starting to learn more about fungi. And um, a big part of this book was talking about how actually scientists have proven that um, tiny little um, networks of like microscopic fungi do connect all of the plants and that plants can actually transfer nutrients and like messages, not in the way Mm -hmm. that like we send messages, but in like a plant way of sending messages um, through this network of fungi to other plants. And the whole time I was reading this book, I was like, does, does DC know that the green is real? (laughs) Like (laughs) it's probably a little more nuanced than they think it is, but um, holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, science fiction becomes science fact. We've seen it before. So um, that's interesting. I, I think Entangled Life. It's called Entangled Life. It's by, get this, the author's name is Merlin Sheldrake. Okay. <laughs> you made that. That's made up. That's no, it's <laughs> real. And like, who else would be writing a book about fungi and how it connects our entire world? True. 
Well, I'm glad that Merlin found his true calling then, because uh, that sounds like the perfect book for him to write, I guess. Um, right. <laughs> well, that, that's interesting you mentioned that, Kate, because uh, I have kind of have a couple thoughts here. Those books are less uh, super heroic, quote unquote, and they're more sort of horror books. You know, they have a different angle to the genre, I think. And I, I think if you're someone, it's always interesting to me to talk to people who didn't read comics as a kid and weren't into superheroes, you know, because that was my whole experience. So whatever um, different angle you have to come at superheroes with to kind of find them interesting, I think horror is a kind of a common one. You know, the idea yeah. of body horror or having powers or the unknown, like that's a good angle to get into the uh, the grand mythology of superheroes. Yeah, I um, another one that I read that's kind of superhero-y or I, I know the Animal Man isn't really like a like a Batman <laughs> or Superman or anything like that, but right. he's like a a reoccurring character as as far as i know he yeah. at least like has shown up in other books so and he's always, who he is yeah yeah and, and he's always kind of been or you know the past 30 years or so he's been a character that is sort of written as being slightly outside of all of that i mean grant morrison's animal man run from the late 80s is fantastic because he does take that character and really change it and change your expect expectations of a superhero comic. So if you want to know more Animal, Animal Man, it's not as horrific as the Jeff Lemire, Travel Foreman stuff, but it is using Animal Man in a very different way than you normally use a superhero to tell the story. So I think I think part of it's also like so many of the DC heroes in particular are, th- are on teams very often. And Animal mm-hmm. Man is not generally a character that I think of as being associated with any one particular team. Like, his stories are very much his stories and not, like, Justice Society stories, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, another one that I was kind of surprised by was Under the Moon, A Catwoman Tale by Lauren Miracle. And um, this, I was just, so I was thinking Catwoman. And then again, my, my mind immediately went to how Catwoman inter- interacts with Batman in particular and like I don't know if she has anything to do with the Justice League but basically the rest of the DC universe and I was I was thinking okay I've heard a lot of really great things about these readers that I trust have recommended it um, but I don't really want to get into like this whole larger world of DC for this one book and that's not what it is at all Um, Under the Moon is more of like a YA coming of age book that really stands on its own and shows like the development of the character from a young age and she hasn't even I don't even think that she meets anybody else um, that we would have heard about in this book yeah and again I think those those young adult novels or graphic novels that DC is doing now are also great ways to do that because they're out of continuity they're introducing somewhat familiar characters in a different context or different light so it, it's it's a fun way to sneak superheroes into an audience that maybe wouldn't normally pick up a you know a regular comic from DC. Yeah, so. which is exactly me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that with a lot of the Catwoman stories, they especially in the last two three decades, they have tried to make her more of a standalone character, so you don't necessarily need to know about the rest of the DC universe when reading a lot of Catwoman content because you're like, ah, yeah. she's the sexy heist lady. I can get into that. <laughs> <laughs> there's much more to her than just being a sexy heist lady. Nothing against that, because that's great, but there's, there's much more to the character. <laughs> oh, no, 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 I know. I, Catwoman is, like, my favorite character, but um, that's, like, the shortest way of describing yeah. what she generally is in the context of the DCU. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, as I mentioned earlier, like, I'm someone that came into comics reading superheroes, specifically DC 
comics and superheroes. So uh, there's a lot of Marvel stuff that I just ignored over the years. And part of uh, one of the things about doing this show is getting to hear Mike Rappin talk about the X-Men a lot. <laughs> so uh, I've slowly, slowly dipped my toes into X-Men comics. I always assumed I wouldn't like them or be invested in them in a certain degree. Um, again, I came of age during the 90s comic boom where X-Men were literally everywhere. The arcade game, the cartoon, the the movies were on the horizon. The comics were everywhere, and I just never really clicked with the characters that much. Um, obviously, I think, again, Grant Morrison's take on the characters, which is kind of the first big X-Men stuff I read was his new X-Men books, which, of course, most X-Men fans don't like. I ended up really liking. And then in the past few years, I've gone back and actually read a lot of the Chris Claremont and John Byrne X-Men stuff from the late 70s, early 80s. And I found myself really enjoying it. It's one of those things where my initial hesitation was, I don't really care about these characters, turned into, oh, actually, these characters are really interesting if you have the right angle on them. And then uh, to that extent, I did read all of Jonathan Hickman's House of X, Powers of Ten stuff. And I didn't continue with that past the, the miniseries itself, but I ended up finding that take on the characters really interesting because it felt fresh and different as opposed to a lot of the, my assumption was that all X-Men stories are exactly the same. But it's nice to have a different, uh, fresh a take, a, take on characters that you think you know. So for me, I was thinking about this. I have, you know, uh, a, a few years ago, I read the manga series One Punch Man. <laughs> and... It is if if you haven't heard of the series, One Punch Man is, I think it's five issues, but like manga style, so each issue is like, you know, six sixty eighty pages. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm just making up numbers, guys. I don't know. Sure. Um, but it's a shonen style manga, which are generally marketed towards um, like teenage boys, and um, shonen style manga tend to have more like. Uh, fighting and action and One Punch Man was described as like this is a dude who just he he can knock anybody out with one punch and I'm like well I don't really like fighting and normally when I read manga it's like the shoujo manga which is more marketed towards like younger adolescent girls and everything's very like frilly and sparkly and this just seems like not my thing um, and reading One Punch Man was kind of like experiencing a sort of epiphany of clarity. Like, you know when you're having like a really uh, chore-laden or exercise-heavy day, maybe you're hiking up a mountain when you're not physically fit (laughs) for that, and you just are covered in like dirt and sweat and grime, and all you want to do is take a shower, and the second you step out of that shower, you just feel like you're a new person. That is the yeah. experience that reading One Punch Man brought to me. I st- I left that book feeling like I was cleansed, like the clair- the speci- specificity and succinctness of the storytelling had caused me to be reborn in my appreciation of the comic book medium. And wow. if okay. you had told me that going into this story, I would have been like, nah, son, it's all about a dude who just punches people. Where's the fun in that? And then I read it and I was like, oh, 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 I see. I see why this is popular. Um, so that was something that I did not expect to like at all. And then I came out of it being like, I have seen the light. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's an interesting point, too, because I I'm admittedly read very little, if any, manga. And part of that is that, um, I don't know if it's aesthetics or just something, but the genre seems daunting to me in a way that it shouldn't be. Like, it should well, be approachable. I should be able to pick something. I mean, well, it, to be fair, your experience with manga is like, Renee, who who mostly <laughs> reads manga and is That's, very yeah. committed to it, and Mike, yeah. who has decided to read One Piece, which is like a thousand <laughs> issues. So, right. Yeah. I, yeah. Manga can be intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> but so, it, but the ability or the, the the drive to just try something knowing that it might not click for you. I think that's what we're talking about for this topic, right? The idea of like pushing yourself out of that comfort zone saying like, hey, I don't normally like manga, but this sounds appealing. Even if story-wise it might not work for me, I'm going to give it a shot. You might be surprised. And I think that's been tough for me to do with manga as opposed to I've been willing to do that with other genres of comics. Yeah, uh, you know, most times it is somebody that I trust giving a personal recommendation that pushes me to read something like that um you know not to not to really double dip here but um when the the recent minisode that nick and i did where i made him read archie and he made me read valiant i genuinely enjoyed (laughs) bloodshot reborn and the first like 10 pages of that book i was like i don't know nick this is like superhero b-level trash i don't know (laughs) it seems pretty generic but it wasn't and I found myself at the end of the first volume being like, I'm going to read more of this, which is not something I would have thought. Like, it's like the whole thing is it's this soldier who just keeps reforming his molecules and he, he solves his problems with guns, but he's not the Punisher kids. And um, I, I think because with Bloodshot Reborn, they were like, all right, this dude and here's his powers plot twist. He doesn't have his powers. And it just made me feel like I could jump right in and know what was going on. And they and they did enough interesting things with the story where I was like, okay, I would not have picked this up had someone not told me to read it, but I'm glad I have read it and will probably continue to read it. Yeah, there you go. I, I, I think, uh, Kate, you also had um, some examples of comics that maybe content-wise in terms of the violence what didn't seem appealing, but you ended up liking. Yeah, um, really recently, actually, for both of these I'm not really attracted to super violent comics. I remember, I can't even remember what the title was at this point, but at one point I had been going through some Mike, some comics that Mike Rappin had, and I'm like, all of these comics have to be good because Mike likes them. And then one or two of them in particular were just like 50% blood on every panel. <laughs> so that really turned me off to like any kind of extreme violence in comics but um recently i i finally read the warlords of appalachia by um, philip kennedy johnson and i had heard i kept hearing about this this book and um it showed up on hoopla and i wasn't really sure that i was going to like it because the cover shows a muscular man holding a bow and arrow with burning buildings in the background and i was like everything about this is things that i don't like um (laughs) (laughs) um But I read it, and it turns out that the story actually involves this guy that's just trying to help his family and his neighbors and avoid this fascist government. So it kind of it kind of hit close to home in some ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, especially because there's a, a segment of the population in it that's that's diseased. Um, but I I enjoyed the the setting and the the very muscular man on the cover is actually I don't know he's a good guy that wants to be left alone and he gets caught in a bad situation. 
and then some of the supporting characters um, really tugged at my heartstrings. So that one was actually ended up being something that I liked a lot. Yeah, interesting. Um, and then I finally read The Old Guard, which I think you've talked about, Paul. That one's by Greg Rucka and Le- uh, Leandro Fernandez. And I read it to see if I wanted to watch the adaptation. I can't remember if it's a TV or a movie. Um, it's a recently. Movie. It should be a okay. show, though. There's okay. more there. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I, so I was expecting more of like a tough, regimented military based on like the cover and the title, um, which again shows, you know, there's a weapon right in the middle of, of the cover. Um, but the characters are all really unique and everybody, all of the characters have different types of relationships with one another that are all very different. Like not just like for a token difference, but they're like, I don't know thousands of years old so these relationships go real deep and i definitely ended up crying a little bit um Aww. over over some of these relationships Aww. and what happened to them and so yeah it was it was a very different book than i was inspect that that i was expecting huh. i actually have not read that i wonder who was the person that recommended it that's one that oh. i have to add to my list so i do normally like greg rucka so i i, I will have to check that out um i wonder who who it was then i could have sworn it was you I think there's an interesting uh, subtopic here, which maybe we have to table for another episode, is how much easier Hoopla has made all of this. <laughs> there's yeah. so many books that I normally would not buy money, uh, spend money on, but I have read and fall in love with because of Hoopla. So that's a, maybe a, the subtext here. I agree. Uh, I, an example. I, oh, go on, Paul. I was going to say an example of that is uh, Gideon Falls by Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino, which again, Nick made me read for a book versus book episode. <laughs> um, and that also helps doing the stuff, having friends uh, recommend stuff and challenge Sensing you to read it. a theme with Nick making <laughs> us read stuff we don't want to read. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, the, the thing here is that I've never clicked with Jeff Lemire's stuff. It's not that I don't like it, but I've never found it that engaging. Outside of his Exus Essex trilogy series, the early comics he did uh, about growing up in Canada, I absolutely love that trilogy. But most of the stuff he's written, particularly superhero stuff, never clicked for me. But Gideon Falls, I guess Nick knew my love of Twin Peaks enough to know a book that uh, borrows a lot of the dreamlike narrative aspects of David Lynch's Twin Peaks and puts into a comic. Uh, It kind of worked for me. It does, again, help that the new volumes show up on Hoopla and I'm all, they pop up on my list and I read them that way as opposed to tracking down the single issues. So that book was a surprise. I think in Sorrentino's artwork does help again, which is another topic. Uh, I think artwork is so important. I, I find it easier to read an underwhelming story with amazing artwork as opposed to a great story with underwhelming or off-putting artwork. There's something there to that dyna- dynamic to me, but that might be another topic for another show. Well, what a what an excellent segue to my next books I was going to talk about, Paul. Uh, you know, there's that kind of like 80s, 90s indie action comic book style where it's like kind of rough and, and sketched out almost. Yeah. Um, I got two books that fall into that category that, again, were recommended to me um, by somebody I trusted uh, when it comes to comic books. And I would never in a million years have picked them up. Um, Revenger by Charles Forsman mm-hmm. and Copra by Michelle Fife. And so Revenger is uh, a very um, simple plot, excellent execution. Uh, Revenger is about this woman who um, essentially looks like Grace Jones, who 
is like, um, I will, like, if you hire me, I will get revenge on people for you. She is the revenger. And so mm-hmm. the book is like very uh, bloody, gritty, action oriented, but in a way that's like very entertaining and extremely well executed. Uh, and if you had just said, like, if I had been, like, walking by Charles Forsman's table at a Comic-Con and seen his work, I would have walked right by. But because somebody I knew said, read this book, I did. And I was like, oh, man, this is awesome. <laughs> because I was, you know, judging it by the art. Yeah, that, that's um, interesting because I, I, I love Charles Forsman because I read The End of the Fucking World, uh, his book that he did early on, which, again, was turned into a Netflix series. I love that comic so much. Revenger felt so radically different from that book. But I ended up liking Revenger as, as well because of his his artwork and his cartooning pacing. There's something ineffable about ineffable about the way he paces action in that book. So it's supposed to look like an '80s action movie, but it, there's a there's a weirdness to it. I can't exactly explain it, but it's a really striking book visually because of that. Yeah, and I kind of I kind of group in Copra with Revenger because it felt to me like that same kind of like 80s early 90s uh like spare lines grittiness um copra is more like if you liked justice league international or any like offbeat quirky superhero team books where everyone is just like one bad day away from like murdering their teammates you know <laughs> yeah. um it's it's like that kind of thing and again like art style and plot wise i probably wouldn't have picked it up but like one issue was enough to sell me on like, oh, Michelle Feeping knows what he's doing, has a very clear vision. He's executing that vision and it works. Yeah, that's another one. I was kind of sold immediately as soon as I saw it. That was so visually striking to me, that style. It's it's uh, Steve Ditko-esque with a bunch of Marshall Rogers style in it. And like that cross section works for me. And then I remember reading a few issues of Capra and then going and reading the John Ostrander Suicide Squad from the 80s, and then realizing Capra is a straight-up homage to that book. So it kind of clicks all the boxes for me, but I can imagine a lot of people that might not be instantly appealing. No, it is It is very Suicide Squad. And again, as Paul said, it's it's the the 80s comic, not the movie. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, Please very different. continue to forget about the movie. <laughs> uh, um, so- I do. I Oh, go ahead. Uh. I well so while thinking about this topic I found it easier actually to think about books that I was told I was supposed to like and didn't actually like for example <laughs> uh you know all those lists of of best comics and graphic novels that you should read like when I was younger I read Watchmen because everyone mm-hmm. said you have to read Watchmen if you're like a real nerd or whatever and, you know, I, I, I understand that that book is a masterwork. I don't like it. I, I, I yeah. don't like yeah. Watchmen. I said it. <laughs> I mean, it's a safe look, space. You can say that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I love the, the HBO sequel. That was very well done. But like the Watchmen graphic novel, I'm like, I understand this is good. It is not for me. Yeah, and I think, you know, we hinted at that earlier, the idea of recognizing craft in something, but it might not grab you emotionally or intellectually. I think that's that's a common thing. Like, um, 
I think it might be a, a topic for another episode. And we have talked about the problems of there being a canonical group of comics that are supposed to be read. Like that's problematic and not helpful. I, I will say I read Watchmen when I was 15. And when I was 15, I loved it. And then reading it again, you know, at 25 or 35, it's diminishing returns. But I think that's that's part of just art in general. You come to it with, you know, different expectations. And uh, when you revisit stuff, it maybe not works for you at that age. So, but again, that might be a, a bigger topic of, of um, uh, you know, books that fail to meet your expectations. Um, as for one more example, honestly, the first book I thought of when I was doing this was, uh, Scott Pilgrim by Brian Lee O'Malley. Oh, okay. Because when I got back into reading comics regularly in around 2007, 2008, that was the new kid on the block. That was the hottest book around and everyone was saying how great it was. And every sort of example or sample I would see, it was just to look to be about video games. And uh, there's few things in the world I find less interesting than video games. So <laughs> I was like, that book's probably not for me. The manga influence, the art style didn't look appealing. The the video game references the went over my head or it didn't work for me. And then it was years later that I finally went and read it because you know I got all the uh, volumes from the library. And I can't say I loved it. Uh, but I found it more interesting and nuanced and complex than I had assumed. And I had the exact same experience with the movie as well, which I only saw very, very recently for the first time. So that's a book that, again, I don't think I'll go back and reread it, but at least I can say I took a chance, tried it, and I found it more interesting than I expected to. I guess like when when I read that book, I found it enjoyable, but I have not revisited it. And the more I think of the concept... The more I'm like, this dude is just like Archie Andrews. Like, how is this idiot getting all these cute girls? Like, right. <laughs> it's just so unrealistic to me because I'm like, man, you're not even trying. Like, we have standards. Hello. And it just was like, oh, a dude wrote this. I, so. Yeah, again, I get <laughs> it. The, the whole idea of a book where the title character, the titular character, the main character and narrator essentially is completely unlikable that's a really tough sell for me personally so that's a big hurdle there's a lot of books where that's a major turnoff where i kind of stop reading where it's like well if i don't like the character how am i supposed to be engaged with the story and i think brian leo o'malley does enough interesting stuff in there and i do think the comic is more nuanced than the movie obviously because it's a lot longer but yeah it, it ended up being surprising to me given my initial hesitation because of the the art style and the completely unlikable character of Scott Pilgrim. I saw an amazing tweet earlier this week that was like, if you have ever been compared to Ramona Flowers, you might be entitled to financial compensation. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, um, the whole genre of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is also problematic to me. But luckily, again, I, I think both the comic and the movie Ramona Flowers is more complex than uh, maybe you expect on first glance. So, uh, yeah, again, I think, uh, does anybody have any other examples they want to shout out before we uh, start to wrap things up here? Well, I think the the this is a very appropriate topic 
for a, a milestone episode, because what are we talking about, if not how we have all learned and grown as humans together on this comic book reading journey? <laughs> yes, good point. Good point, Karen. So yeah, I, th- I think if nothing else, I, I'd be curious to hear what our listeners think, if there are any other books that um, they initially were hesitant about and end up loving, or if they want to yell at us for not liking certain books <laughs> that we should. That's fine too, I guess. Um, so you all know where to find us. We are all over the internet. You can follow us individually on Twitter. Kate is at Kate L. Fear. Kara is at Kara S. Zam, and I am at Ohi Polly. This show is at IRCB Podcast, where we share comic news, art, sass, and a whole lot more. This show and our many subscriber-only episodes are powered by fans like you on Patreon. Join now at patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you haven't already, please rate and review our show five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us on Discord at ircbpodcast.com slash Discord and make sure to tell a friend or two about the show. Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They also do the music for our show, so thank you to them. Xander is a good friend and a fantastic editor. Thank you for doing this 250 episodes, Xander, plus many more. I want to thank Kate and Kara for joining me today. Thank you, Mike, for letting me sit in the host chair. And until next time, comics are good and so are you.